Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, it is great to be here with you and a privilege. Today on the podcast, we are talking about the importance of cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness approaches in the treatment of chronic pain. Joining us this week as our special guest is Dr. Beverly Thorne. Beverly is Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Alabama. She is the recipient of the 2018 Wilbert E. Fordyce Clinical Investigator Award from the American Pain Society. Her research has focused on investigating the important components of cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain. Since retiring in 2016, she has remained actively involved in making more comprehensive and interdisciplinary treatment available to everyone with chronic pain. On today's podcast, you will learn why the cognitive model is important in the treatment of chronic pain care, what should be included in cognitive treatment for chronic pain, and how many sessions are required to see meaningful change, the importance of motivational enhancement and assertiveness, why treatments designed for those with pain should be simple and accessible, as well as some of the mechanisms, the similarities, and the differences between cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness approaches for chronic pain. This is a great podcast, whether you are a practitioner or a patient interested in learning more about psychologically informed care. Beverly has spent over 30 years working with the cognitive model with regards to chronic pain populations, and especially with regard to implementing these interventions with those who have low literacy. She is a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I hope you walk away from this episode with a list of notes and nuggets as I did. Beverly has also provided us with a gift to accompany this podcast, which you can download for free. It's called 10 Reasons It's Not All in Your Head. This is a great PDF handout, whether you're someone with pain or you're a practitioner who treats chronic pain, this can be part of your pain education arsenal that you use with your patients. To download it, all you have to do is go to the URL www.drjotata.com forward slash 107 download. That's www.drjotata.com forward slash 107 download. Or if you're listening to this on your smartphone, simply text the word 107 download to the number 44222. So on your cell phone, you will text the word 107 download to the number 44222. Okay, hopefully everyone has that. All the notes can be found on the show notes on the podcast at drjotata.com forward slash podcasts. And then let's begin with the incredible Beverly Thorne. Hi, Beverly. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Joe. Thank you for having me. I was excited to meet you um, back in September at the World Congress for Pain in Boston. You gave a great lecture on cognitive treatments for, for chronic pain. Plus, you gave me a great free book, which is always <laughs> such a great bonus. I want to thank you for the, the 
great lecture there. And I want to thank you for um, the book. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I know it's based on um, years of your research and study and pivotal research and working with people with chronic pain from a cognitive and a mindful per- mindfulness perspective. You are a health psychologist who has specialized in chronic pain. Give us a little bit of the background about who you are and, and what you've done throughout your career. Sure. So my area, as you said, is, is health psychology. It's clinical health psychology. And what that means is for, for the entirety of my career, I've worked with and studied the impact of psychology on chronic health conditions. So I don't work so much with mental illness per se, as I work helping people manage and prevent chronic health conditions that are so rampant in our society today. So we are a different brand of psychologists. Most people think of psychologists as, oh, I'm going to get in your head. You're going to get in my head and you're going to analyze me. We don't do that stuff. We work with really real life situations to help people cope better. And we give them coping management skills to do that. Excellent. I love that approach, I think. At times when people hear that psychologists, um, or if they have chronic pain, going to see a psychologist could be beneficial for them and help them cope. Like you said, they think, well, I don't want to talk about, you know, my history with my, my family or my parents. And I love that, that that approach is really more, we don't get into your head, mm-hmm. cope with what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about the distinctions between, let's say, health psychology versus uh, rehabilitation psychology? versus, I guess, a general clinical psychologist. Yes. And before I do that, I want to pick up on something that you said just a minute ago, and that is the patient who is hesitant to go to a psychologist for managing chronic pain. One of the biggest battles that we fight is to help patients understand that we deal with real physical conditions. We help them with real physical conditions. And if their physician is sending them to us, it's not because their physician thinks that their pain is in their head, that their pain is not real. We deal with people who have real pain, and we can still help people with real pain via psychology. The difference between a clinical psychologist and a health psychologist and a rehab psychologist is that clinical psychologists have traditionally been trained to assess, diagnose, and treat mental illness, for example, depression and anxiety. And that's been very, very useful and continues to be a very, very useful means of helping people cope with life. Health psychologists, as I said a little bit earlier, study and work with patients to either prevent or manage chronic physical health conditions. And then rehab psychologists also help people deal with, often it's an injury-related condition. So for example, a spinal cord injury or a head injury. But there's quite a bit of overlap nowadays too. We're all trained in a broad and general sense when we're trained at the doctoral level. So we're a psychologist first, a clinical psychologist next, and then a rehab psychologist or a clinical health psychologist So we specialize, we layer the specialization on similar to what happens in medical school. For people who go to medical school, they first learn the basics of being a physician, and then they start doing their residencies and get more and more progressively specialized. Mm, Excellent. That's a beautiful description. I think that's one that's helpful for 
um, the public to figure out who they would like to go see and what's appropriate for them. I think it's even helpful for people who are interested in psychology and they're trying to figure out, okay, which direction do I want to go in in school or which direction do I want to go in as far um, as graduate programs go? That's, that's excellent. So from that health psychology, that, you know, kind of broader umbrella of health psychology, how did you wind up kind of focusing in on chronic pain? Well, that was, that's an interesting little historical um, ditty there. I, um, when I was going to graduate school back in the dark ages, I did, <laughs> and I knew I wanted to do something with the brain because I found the brain fascinating. There's so many answers in the guts of the brain, if you will. I knew I wanted to study the facts of the brain, but I also wanted to work with people. So I was looking for a graduate program where I could do research on the brain and work with people. And back then, and this was in the late 70s, they really didn't have clinical health psychology graduate programs. But I found a program called bioclinical psychology. And I actually satisfied the degree requirements of two degrees, one in neuroscience and one in clinical psychology. And my main advisor was a neuroscientist, and he worked on morphine and the effects of morphine on the brain. He wasn't so interested in the effects of morphine on pain. He was more interested in the effects of morphine on tolerance and dependence and what happens during withdrawal. And I knew at that time, I thought, well, I don't really want to work in the area of drug dependence. And so I sort of flipped a coin and said, I work in the area of pain. And so I started seeing patients, and there's so many of them, started seeing patients who had chronic pain, and, and it just really clicked for me. I felt like I really had something to offer them that was unique, a, a unique perspective. It didn't involve drugs, but it wasn't a fight with drugs. Mm -hmm. And I went from there. Excellent. And then I guess how many years did you, did you work in clinical practice? Did you teach? Did you do research? How did that all start to develop? Right. So after my residency, I went straight from my residency to Ohio State University for six years and loved it there, but married a man in, in Alabama. So I uh, moved back to Alabama and I was at the University of Alabama for 30 years and I retired two years ago. So I'm still doing research. I'm still, I still have graduate students, but I'm less actively involved in research and teaching than I have been. But I'm at the point in my career where I'm really trying to help change the culture that we live in, in terms of a biomedical model culture where we treat everything biomedically and solely biomedically and, and instead help people understand that that's living on bread and water. We got to, what we really want to do is help give them a, at least a three course meal, if not a five course meal to help them manage chronic illnesses and chronic pain. Yeah, I agree. And I think chronic pain is, you know, perhaps our biggest chronic illness that we have. It's, you know, a symptom of a lot of the other non-communicable diseases, but some people look at it as a disease in and of itself. And there's mm -hmm. some, some controversy over whether it is a disease in and of itself. So let's start to walk our way into the cognitive model for chronic pain. I guess first explain what a cognitive model is and why it's important for, for chronic pain. So very, very simply put, the cognitive model of pain 
says that our thoughts influence our feelings, influence our behavior, and all three of those influence how we adapt to any chronic physical condition, including chronic pain. And it's not just a one-way street, thoughts to feelings to behavior. Our feelings, of course, influence our thoughts, and our behaviors influence our feelings. And so these are two-edged arrows every which way. But the importance there is that we're talking about that all of these factors, which are psychological factors, if you will, our thoughts, what we, what we tell ourselves inside our head, our feelings, whether we're anxious, whether we're angry, whether we're depressed, or whether we're content, and our behaviors, whether we just go to bed um, and just say, I'm not going to deal with that, or whether we get out and take a walk, all of those influence how we adjust to chronic pain. That's a very simplified model, but it's a model that works very well in the management of chronic illness. Right. And obviously it came out of the Beck School of Cognitive Therapy. That's right. Um, And, you know, when we have a lot of, well, I shouldn't say this. We don't have a lot of research on chronic pain. We have a, a growing body of research on chronic pain. And as we look back at that body, when we look at, you know, things like exercise, when we look at the mindfulness-based approaches, which we're going to look at later, mm-hmm. a little bit later on in the podcast, CBT really has probably the most research and the most evidence for chronic pain at this time. Mm-hmm. Yes, cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the things we have to make sure everybody understands is that it's really broadly defined and it's a big umbrella term now. And depending on who's talking about it, the techniques that are involved and the even sometimes the theoretical approach to cognitive behavioral therapy can be different. So arguably, acceptance and commitment therapy is a cognitive behavioral therapy. It has its own theoretical focus, and it also has its own specific techniques, whereas mindfulness-based stress reduction, also arguably a cognitive behavioral therapy comes from a little bit of a different perspective and has different but compatible techniques. And cognitive behavioral therapy depends on the practitioner. So although I incorporate some mindfulness and I incorporate some um, motivational enhancement techniques, I'm much more of a, quote, traditional cognitive behavioral therapist in that I help people recognize their thoughts and deal with their thoughts. We can talk about that a little bit later in more detail, and also give them traditional relaxation exercises and other techniques like assertiveness training that helps so much dealing with the medical population as well. Mm, Excellent. So you started to kind of break into this a little bit here. As people start to open up to the idea that cognitive behavioral therapy can help someone with pain, Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned relaxation training. What are what is the framework of of CBT for chronic pain? What what does that look like? The theoretical framework of CBT. Uh, no, actually, I guess yeah, I should be a little more specific. The framework of what a course of treatment looks like. So whether it's the number of treatment sessions and then what is covered in each treatment session in in a CBT course for for chronic pain. Gotcha. So uh, if you look at the research literature, that the, the a course of CBT could be as short as one session or could be as long as 10, 15 now uh, sessions. The ones that I have researched and done have been 10 sessions. They're usually an hour and a half long. 
I prefer group pain management because it really helps with people not feeling alone. People with chronic pain are, are very isolated and they feel they feel like a freak. They feel like they're the only person in the world who's ever been told or somebody's implied that the pain is all in their head, that the pain is not real. So I like to get them in a group because then the group cohesion factor is also very, very important and play on that. It's called a, a common therapeutic factor. But we have 10 sessions. They're an hour and a half. And we always start, we infuse pain education into our model of treatment. So in each session, we're teaching them about a critical point regarding chronic pain. For example, I think one of the main critical points, and I know you've dealt with this in, your, in other podcasts, is the fact that the brain is the organ in our body that perceives pain. And the brain is a huge filter. And that brain can filter out pain signals to make them less apparent, or the brain can enhance pain signals to make them much more difficult to manage. And if we know that the brain has that power, and we know that our techniques can help us manage the brain, we can quiet the brain down and reduce the pain signals that are actually getting to what I call our ouch center in our brain. So everything is built on that. And we talk about the importance of stress. We talk about the importance of stress management. We teach them about the parts of stress because it's not just a physical thing. It's a, an emotional thing. It's a cognitive or thoughts-related thing. It's happening in your body. It's happening when you're stressed. It's also happening in your behavior. And then we teach them that relaxation techniques, especially if they're practiced on a regular basis, can actually quiet or reduce what I call the stress thermostat, reset the stress thermostat so that we're not as reactive to smaller stressors and we're less and less reactive. Our body becomes less reactive. Our mind becomes less reactive. And then our behaviors can be more thoughtful and more responsive rather than a reflex knee-jerk reaction. So we do relaxation. I mentioned assertiveness training. One of our modules in our 10-session unit is always assertiveness training, not only to help people understand that they have a right to say no and that they have a right to ask for what they want, but to teach them the appropriate way to do that. Because often... People, even without chronic pain, we're not very assertive. We're either passive or we're aggressive. And that doesn't work very well. And it certainly doesn't work very well in the medical community. So we teach people how to work with their practitioners to ask ask for what they want. And we teach them how to work with their family members because chronic pain is a severe stressor on family. And so we want to help knit that unit together as much as possible. Mm. We also teach them something called expressive writing or emotional expression exercises where this is just one of the units. And it's not typical in every uh, CBT program, but there's good research backing. So we've incorporated it into our unit. But what we do is we teach people to write down their deepest thoughts and feelings about an unresolved emotional experience. It can be related to their pain or it doesn't have to be related to their pain. 
for some people, that is very empowering. For some people, it's like, eh, it didn't do much for me. Depends on the person. We focus um, a few sessions on the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's perhaps my contribution to the field that I've really expanded the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy, a la Beck. But what we teach people is how to recognize automatic thoughts and then how to ask themselves, is this completely true or is part of this a distortion that's not serving me well? Now, here's the, here's the kicker, I think, for, for my brand of cognitive therapy. We don't necessarily insist that people change those thoughts. What we have discovered is that just being aware that they're in their head and they're telling themselves these negative, perhaps distorted thought patterns is having an impact on them. Just being aware of that what they often do is create a different relationship to the thought. So it's not necessary for them to make them change that thought. What happens is they naturally start developing a different relationship to their thoughts. This is very similar to ACT. Yeah. We can talk so, more about that. Yeah, so it sounds like you've started to... Um, uh, the structure part of it. Mm-hmm. And I know there's, you probably know some of the research better than I do, but there's controversy over whether you can actually change thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, which in the traditional cognitive model would be you would challenge the thought and mm-hmm. you would try to mold it or change it. Mm-hmm. Where in some of the third wave psychologies, it's a little bit, it's, it's significantly less of that. It's really just noticing the thought is there, potentially naming it and allowing it to move on. You know, the technical word they use in act would be diffuse and have less of an impact on you. Mm-hmm. When did you start to <laughs> soften to that a little bit versus the kind of hard cognitive model? Mm-hmm. I think I started softening to the issue of must you change a thought when first I noticed that. So we had two different sessions. One was recognizing the thoughts and getting people to recognize what they were telling themselves and asking them, is this, is this working for you? And then the next session was to examine whether it's truthful and to change the thought. I started recognizing that people were coming back in between the week and they go, oh, yeah, now that you you made me realize that I'm thinking this thought. And I say to myself, well, that's bull. I don't need to be thinking that thought. And um, I realized that the structure of changing the thought, like which part is unrealistic, which part is negative. Now, change that into a positive thought. They didn't need that. They did it for themselves. And they didn't do it real formally. But I do believe they changed their thoughts. And um, I can give you an example if you like. And this, yeah, was, the, this, was, the, <laughs> this was the one that was most prominent for me of all time. And this was really working with what we call core beliefs in cognitive therapy, which are the deepest part. They're the roots. They're... According to Beck, they're the things that develop our core beliefs about our worth, worthfulness or worthlessness as a person and our lovability. They develop in childhood and in bad times, those negative core beliefs come out big time. And so we have a unit on core beliefs. And I was working with a group of people who suffer from headaches. And, and I had a woman in there who had only gone through the, through the eighth grade. 
and she was 84 and I didn't really think she was getting a whole lot out of the group, but she was staying every week and she was doing the relaxation. She liked the relaxation. I didn't think she was getting anything about the cognitive stuff, but that was okay. She was there. So I'm going into the core beliefs and talking about how we see ourselves as people who have a role and it could be a role we don't want to have or a negative aspect of it. And I'm talking away and people are relating and suddenly she bangs her bangs her fist on the desk and says, wait a minute, are you telling me that I don't have to be the servant of my entire family at all times? And she hadn't said a word in days. And I said, yeah, I'm telling you that. And she said, well, things are going to change from now on. And she, and then she said, I'm going to, I'm going to start standing tall with my brother. And when he needs to go to dialysis, he's going to have to give me a two hour notice or he's going to have to take a cab and I'm going to do this with my daughter and that. And she changed her whole persona based on the recognition that she was telling herself, you must be this certain way to be lovable and to be worthwhile to your family. And she changed it immediately. And I do believe it was a change. I don't believe it was just like, oh, I recognized my thought, I labeled it, and then I diffused it. So who knows? Who knows? We reached the same end goal, I think, with these things. And that's the good news. Exactly. So we're all aiming for that kind of, you know, the center point of that bullseye. And there's a lot of different ways to to hit that, um, to hit that bullseye. It's a, it's a great example. It also makes me, me wonder, and I'm sure if someone this would be a great PhD for someone to delve further into. From a clinical perspective, because as, as practitioners, we have our own judgments and expectations. Do we have any idea who might benefit more from cognitive restructuring versus just, just noticing? That's a great question. Who benefits most from what approach? And really, that's the way that our research is starting to move into what we call mechanisms research. And so what characteristics about you, Joe, make you more likely to benefit from recognizing and accepting, let's say, and letting it pass versus what characteristics in me make me benefit most from recognizing and changing the thoughts? One of the difficulties, one of the many difficulties is to tease those things apart. You have to have very large numbers of participants to have the statistical power to tease those things apart. And behavioral trials are different from, let's say, medicine trials. Medicine trials, it's not unusual to have 3,000 people in a sample. In behavioral trials, it's pretty unusual to have, let's say, 100 people per treatment arm. The other thing that makes it difficult to tease apart is, for example, in my treatment program, we teach recognizing and accepting as well as teaching recognizing and changing. So unless I separate those treatments out, and we don't usually separate those treatments out. Well, I shouldn't say we don't usually. I don't separate them out because I try to take the best from everything and use it. Unless we separate them out, and make them sort of not realistic in a clinical sense, then we're not going to be able to answer those questions. However, 
this gets into, I think, a really interesting conversation that I actually I had yesterday with the, the head of Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, the head of PCORI, and uh, his name is uh, Dr. Joel Selby. And he was talking about the tyranny of the averages. And the tyranny of the averages is when we do randomized clinical trials, on average, we say, on average, the people in, let's say, the cognitive behavioral therapy arm got this much reduction in pain and this much reduction in interference in their life due to pain. And on average, the people in the usual medical care got this much reduction, and we compare those two. On average, doesn't tell us who is doing best in which arm. And so we are starting to do something called heterogeneity of treatment effects. And um, is a really interesting and complicated area of research, but we just actually did those analyses on our most recent clinical trial. And we found some very unexpected and very interesting results about who benefited most from group pain education versus who benefited most from group cognitive behavioral therapy. And I can go into those findings if you like um, yeah, at some point. I'd love to hear some of the specifics um, yeah. that you found. So as you know, Joe, but many people in the audience may not know, our most recent randomized clinical trial has, well, my last 10 years of my research has been focused on drilling down to the nuggets of cognitive behavioral therapy and group therapy for chronic pain so that we can simplify it and offer it to people who are multiply disadvantaged, particularly literacy challenged and low educational attainment. Because I've heard for years, since I published my first book in 2004, I've heard, well, this doesn't work. This stuff, this cognitive therapy, this reading and writing based, this workshop, worksheet based therapy doesn't work for people who aren't, you know, who have low socioeconomic status. And my response has always been, why shouldn't it? Let's simplify it. Let's drill it down to make it the most important, the simplified means. So what we have done over the past 10 years is develop a very simplified, literacy-adapted, cognitive behavioral 10-session treatment program for chronic pain, where we don't even assign written homework, which is very controversial in the CBT field. We give them CDs, audio CDs, every week summarizing what we've done with them. And we give them audio relaxation CDs. These people are multiply disadvantaged. And we thought we were going to be handing them MP3 links. Uh, MP3 links are not going to work with this population. We had to burn CDs. But we really structured the CBT so that we did a lot of the work for them. And then in the group education, we gave them the pain facts, the same relevant pain facts. We used a biopsychosocial model and we did the group treatment in very interactive based. And what we wanted to see is, well, first of all, do either, do both of them work equally compared to usual medical care? But more importantly, or even as important anyway, for whom does each of these work best? Our big surprise was that for the most disadvantaged, the ones with the poor literacy, the ones with the poor educational attainment, they did better in CBT than education, which is almost counterintuitive because CBT 
arguably takes more work. It takes more cognitive. It takes more reading and writing, not the way we designed it anyway. We think, and, and then those in education, literacy level didn't matter. So we think what happened was we have structured the CBT in such a simplified way that the structure and the help, the extra help we gave them with the audios actually made it doable for those with very low literacy. Whereas in education, the people with higher literacy just took the information and ran with it. And that's the important kind of research that's starting to happen in the biopsychosocial pain field. And it's so important because if we know that, and if it's replicated, this was only one study. If that's replicated and we start to know that, then what we can say is for many people, group pain education might be enough along with their other treatments. But for the disadvantaged folks, or perhaps for folks who are more depressed, or perhaps for folks who catastrophize more, then CBT may be a necessary adjunct after the pain education. I, that's fascinating because I had this conversation with a psychologist, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And this is probably her opinion because she doesn't research this, but she said, yes, people who are quote unquote smarter who are more highly intelligent, do better with CBT when they have pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that is stuck in my head, actually, to this moment, just now, well, not to this moment, but so I actually started looking into your research, which actually says quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. It also makes me think, and this is something we can talk about a little bit, as we sit here, you have a PhD, I have a DPT, we both have spent years reading research and going on continuing education courses, we're so smart on some level, but yet what works for people is when you can take all that information and distill it into something that's structured, something that's simple, something that's easy and approachable. And I think nowadays where you kind of leverage technology to um, continually, you know, drive those, those principles home. Because when I, I mean, I, I've worked with, both of us have worked with students and they have so much knowledge but they have a really difficult time now explaining to someone and distilling that down to bite-sized chunks that you know people can take home. And let's let's face it, pain is a really complicated thing when you look at the neuroscience behind it. You know, I think Laura Mamosi's work is pivotal in that area. He's he's been brilliant about distilling things down into simple. And even some of his work, I look at, I'm like, well, that's a little bit too complex still for certain things. Like, you know, I guess my question is: Is the wave of the future making things simple for people? Well, that's a great question, and it's so multifaceted. We could talk for hours just about that. But I think we must, in any, any field of medicine, biomedical intervention or, or allied medicine, as we, uh, physical therapy and psychology are sometimes called, I think we have an obligation. It's a moral, ethical obligation to do some of the work for our patients, especially patients with chronic pain because, or, or any chronic illness, because just the stress of the chronic illness lowers their ability to think and reason and do abstract thinking, lowers their energy level. But even so, we live on a day-to-day -day basis with our terminology. Other people don't live with that the terminology. Every one of us has had the experience of going, taking our car 
into the shop and then thrown some terms at us. They live with those terms. They're comfortable with those terms. They mean nothing to us. Every one of us has had the experience of going to a physician and been told that you have a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we come out of there going, huh? Right. I don't know. I don't know what that means. We can do the same with psychological terms. We can do the same with physical therapy terms. We have an obligation to translate that down, to simplify that down. I tell my students, folksify it. You know, um, you're talking to your grandmother here. Talk yeah. to your grandmother. You don't use those terms with your grandmother. Yeah. It's been such an interesting learning experience for us, really, since 2004, when I first published my cognitive therapy book, I started getting responses from readers. These were mostly practitioners, but they were like, this is great, except is this going to work for the common man? And I realized my terminology was way too up here. To bring it down is difficult for us people who have been in school for so long, but we got to do it. And so is the wave of the future to simplify yeah, I think so. I think we're way too much in our own heads <laughs> um, when we get a lot of schooling. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so good for us to have to talk to the public, to yeah. have to talk to social media and the reporters, because they're not going to let you get away with that fancy terminology stuff. It, it, it's true. The, the, the few podcasts I've done and uh, radio shows that I've been on, you, you know, sometimes you only have five minutes. Mm-hmm. And you have to actually really distill your message down into mm-hmm. these bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. That, like you said, people from all over the country of all different shape sizes and educational levels can say, oh, I kind of got that. That was good. Mm-hmm. That was five minutes mm-hmm. of pain education or maybe five minutes of a, of a quick cognitive <laughs> you know, nugget that right. actually changed my perception you know, what's, what's happening. Um, I'm so happy we're on the same page with that. And, you know, I almost feel like as pain professionals, we need a course that teaches us how to simplify things. Amen. I I absolutely agree. (laughs) And I would love to teach it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have this bedrock foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we only touched in cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of things. There's relaxation training you mentioned. There's cognitive restructuring. Um, there's pleasant activities. Mm-hmm. There's behavioral activation. There's um, graded exposure. Yeah. There's graded activity training. There's so much in the cognitive model. Mm-hmm. Then the third wave comes in and you have acceptance and commitment therapy. <laughs> you have mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. You have mindfulness-based stress reduction. What starts to separate the CBT from the um, mindfulness-based informed type therapies? Mm -hmm. That's a great question too. And I think it depends on who you talk to, what answer you would get. So I I have certainly had discussions with uh, folks who have designed and implemented the ACT model. Sometimes we set it up as an opposition or a competition We're not the Democrats and the Republicans here. (laughs) Thank the Lord, we're not. And so we shouldn't get into that kind of thing like you're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. And so I've always had the stance of, oh, isn't that interesting that you're using this technique to get at what we think the bottom of it is, but maybe we don't know what the bottom of it is. So for example... Is the key mechanism changing somebody's acceptance 
or is the key mechanism changing somebody's level of pain catastrophizing? Or is it both? And there's research that suggests that it's both. And when we do mindfulness-based stress reduction or ACT therapy or CBT, what's interesting is we see any of those change people's acceptance and their psychological flexibility, which are supposedly key mechanisms for ACT, but not key mechanisms for CBT. And when we do ACT or mindfulness, what we see is those treatment approaches change people's level of catastrophizing. And that's not supposed to be changing their thoughts, but it does. Because I think these things naturally fall into place. And all of them also change people's sense of self-efficacy. And I think that's such a key component. Most of the patients who come to me feel completely out of control with their life. They feel completely passive and dependent on a biomedical system who's they feel like is constantly kicking them out the door like, oh, you're a drug seeker now that we have an opioid epidemic. I prescribed you, uh, you know, Oxycontin for years, but now you are a drug seeker. We don't want anything to do with you. They feel out of control. They feel desperate and they feel like their life is over. And if you can, with any of these techniques, give them a little nugget that helps them start to feel self-efficacious again, start to feel like, oh, I can do that. Yes, I can. I can do that. And then maybe, and in doing that, it makes a difference in how my life is going. We need to capitalize on that. So how are they different? I would say theoretically in in the ACT model and in mindfulness-based model, the, the emphasis is more on not necessarily changing the thing, but changing the relationship to the thing. I do have a little difficulty throwing the welcome mat out for the pain, I must admit. <laughs> that makes me nervous when I, I don't tell my patients to throw the welcome mat out for the pain. But change our relationship to the thing rather than changing the thing. And perhaps in cognitive behavioral therapy, We're changing the thing, not necessarily the pain, but we are changing our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions. We're working with our behaviors, our thoughts, and our emotions, which in some regards, both of those techniques might actually end up changing our perception of pain. Do end up changing our perception of pain. And you're correct. And no one... No one accepts pain. I've, I've never met someone, whether it's someone who has pain. I've never met a physical therapist who accepts pain. I've never met a, a psychologist who accepts pain. But there is a, um, a willingness that does need to happen. So people can say, okay, I'm going to sign up for the CBT course, or I'm going to take the MBSR course, or I'm going to take the yoga, co- yoga class or, or you know, whatever it is. And to roll back a little bit of what you said, like, you know, this ACT versus CBT that sometimes comes up to let the psychologists and the mental health professionals off the hook. We have this in physical therapy too, where it's like Mm. the explained pain versus the pain neuroscience education, which one is better. And when you look at all these types of, of treatments, eventually in a lot of ways you can boil it down to they all have similar mechanisms. And in some ways, all roads lead to Rome. Tell me each of us in, in clinical practice has that, that success story. That one patient who stands out in your mind, who everything worked right, 
And there was just a total transformation and meta- metamorphosis. Tell me who that patient is for you in your career. I had a, a patient in our most recent clinical trial who came in to the group treatment very angry. He was one of one of the uh, most angry people um, who was willing to come into the treatment program. And the only reason he was willing to come in is because his primary provider, who happens to be a chiropractor, he had an excellent relationship with her. And he would do anything she said that he should do. And she said, I think that it would be helpful for you to be in this in this program. So he was willing to try it. But he sat there very angry <laughs> for the first several weeks. And he talked about how the medical system had screwed him, how he had lost his job when he became less able. That means he lost his insurance. That means once he lost his insurance, he wasn't getting the same kind of medical treatment. He had a surgery that he didn't need uh, for carpal tunnel syndrome when really supposedly the issue was in his cervical spine and on and on and on. He felt like they made him made him addicted to opiates and then removed the opiate. So he was very angry. And to see the transformation over time, to see him start to really listen and uncross his arms and to start to say, oh, you know, yeah, sometimes I take the medicine, not because I'm in pain, but because I'm afraid I'm going to be in pain. Mm -hmm. I can probably stop that. And sometimes I take the medicine because I'm pissed off at my wife, not because I'm really in pain. I think what last week I went and did a relaxation thing and then we had a good talk and then I didn't need the pain medicine. It's like it starts to dawn on them a little bit at a time and they start to incorporate this into, into their life. And by the time he finished treatment, he wanted to be a spokesman for us. <laughs> and he actually, PCORI, Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute, actually did an interview with him. Um, and they put it on their website for a while, too. And he was our spokesman. And he, he told us after the treatment that he thought that his chiropractor was sending him for electroconvulsive shock therapy oh, of his boy. brain. He thought that's what we were going to do to his brain. But he was willing to try it because of the strength of the relationship with his practitioner. And he was relieved. We went, we didn't do that. But he said, what you did is just as powerful as maybe giving me shock therapy. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was really, I have several of them. Yeah. <laughs> that one was really sticks out in my mind. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful when people embody the work and then they're, they're so motivated that they want to go help other people. Yeah. I think, we, I think we need more of, um, I call them pilgrims of pain relief where, you know, I, I, I think it's great that all of us clinicians are doing this, but I really think when you look at the biblical amount of people who have chronic pain, um, there's only so much we can do. I think the, the greater public, um, is really eventually going to be the force that, that, um, helps others. And, you know, it goes back to, you look into the research around pro-social behavior. I think it really starts to tie in really well with the, with the chronic pain epidemic. Yes. Let me ask you a little, let me ask you a, a little bit more difficult question. We love helping people. 
and we love our success stories. But every once in a while, there's that person who doesn't do well. Mm-hmm. They, they slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. You know, you work in inter- interdisciplinary care, um, like many of us do, and sometimes something in the chain of events that doesn't doesn't work well, doesn't happen, doesn't doesn't serve them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's one patient, or maybe it's a, a more broader question I can ask you. But where are we failing people that we need to? look at and say, even with our research and our degrees and all the things we have, we're still not hitting this particular area or this mm-hmm. particular person, this particular demographic that we need to address more. Right. Well, I think we're failing people by continuing to give them fragmented treatment. And we, um, we are, we, our society, our, our healthcare system is a paid per intervention system and if you have insurance, your insurance company will likely pay for up to five spinal fusions. And uh, just the surgical cost alone is over $110,000. But then you're sort of pushed out the door after, after your surgery. You're not given any help in how to cope with the post-surgical healing pain, except for maybe a big bottle of OxyContin. And I think we're only, you know, so-and-so is treating the headache, so-and-so is treating the low back pain. They are not talking to each other. And we're certainly not interdisciplinary. We were more interdisciplinary in the 1980s when there were inpatient interdisciplinary pain programs that were paid by insurance. They're not paid for anymore. Um, Behavioral interventionists, you know, uh, many, many physicians say, yeah, this cognitive behavioral therapy is great, great stuff. I hear it. I buy it. I can't find a CBT therapist anywhere. Um, where are they? Well, they're not being paid. Uh, we don't pay for these, quote, ancillary treatments. And you're not going to get a lot of people who are going to be doing this just out of the goodness of their heart. Physicians wouldn't do it just out of the goodness of the heart. They have to make a living as well. So we have these silos of treatment and approaches, and we're not working together. And I think that that's where we're really failing, really failing our, our patients. And we're still letting them, asking them to function in this fragmented care system that isn't a health care system. It's an illness care system at best, and we don't do a good job with that either. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting to me when I look at chronic pain. People say, "Well, how do you how do you fix this problem?" Like you've done these podcasts, you talked to all these people, you've worked in chronic pain for twenty plus years, and I always say, "I I believe that the I want to be careful with the word cure, but let's just use the word cure for now. The cure for chronic pain lies in the therapies, and it's the therapies, the allied health therapies, like you mentioned before, are often the things that are not covered, mm-hmm. or if they are covered, they're just covered. They're covered poorly." Mm-hmm. Um, I tell mm-hmm. people all the time when I first started practicing in 1996, we pretty much had unlimited physical therapy visits for patients. And there are drawbacks to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think the national average is about, I think, six visits for physical therapy. And that's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to work on the physical aspects of things. And as PTs start to psychologically inform their care, it's not enough to start to integrate the other things that happen that need to be happening in physical therapy to, like you said, integrate care or to help support what's happening in psychotherapy 
So it's it's an interesting time we're living in and to see where this all starts to evolve and how it evolves and um you know what's gonna be big needle movers for for people. Yes, I a hundred percent agree. And not only are we re- reducing coverage for the allied health care, we're even if we had even if you had unlimited um physical therapy uh, visits, if the physical therapist and the primary care doc aren't talking and aren't working together, we're still doing the silo thing. And that that's a travesty, really. Yeah, I, I talk about that silo mentality in the opening of my book. And it's the one thing that disappoints me that people, I get people who write in about, um, you talked about the brain and pain. It was, it was life-changing. You talked about nutrition. It was life-changing and exercise. But no one ever mentions that silo in healthcare. I wonder why it's not talked about more. I think because it's one of the last ceilings we have to break down. Hmm. I also think it makes medical systems look at everything that they have set up needs to be reconstructed. And that can be scary to big medical systems because it involves a lot of change and change is difficult, especially for practitioners as well. Change is really tough. Well, change is difficult. And especially if it's threatening that it might change the financial status quo, um, which it will. Mm -hmm. It will. But it's not working this way. (laughs) I agree. Beverly, it's been exciting and exhilarating to talk to you today. Uh, We've talked for quite a while. Um, I have both your books. If people want an excellent book on cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, um, Beverly's book, it's in the second edition, is called Cognitive Therapy for Chronic Pain, a step-by-step guide by Beverly E. Thorne. You can find it on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it in other places, but go to Amazon and just type in Cognitive Therapy for Chronic Pain, Beverly Thorne, and you'll find it. It's a great book. The first edition was more from a cognitive model. The second edition, she, of course... It was deeper into the cognitive model, but also weaves in a little bit of mindfulness, which I think is super important. So that's the plug for your book. But please tell us what else you have going on and where people can learn more about you. Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, during our conversation, I've been really focusing my research now on, uh, or in the past 10 years, really, on this simplification of cognitive behavioral therapy, drilling down and making it meaningful for everybody people with low literacy, low education, but also just people who are sick and can't concentrate as much. And so we've uh, we've actually just finished a large behavioral trial looking at the efficacy of the simplified cognitive behavioral approach. Whereas the book you mentioned is not necessarily simplified. It's It has been informed quite a bit. The second edition was quite informed by our efforts to simplify. Um, so it's simpler than the first, I'll tell you that one. But now what we've done is we've made a, a workbook for people who are working on, in, in a group or an individual setting uh, with people who need a more simplified approach. And it's called a Literacy Adapted Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Workbook. It's freely available on my uh, website, uh, which is pmt.ua.edu slash publications. You can download it freely for therapists who want multiple copies because they're going to be giving out copies to their clients. You can actually, we have a a contract with Book Baby, which is one of those published on demand sites, and you can actually order bound copies of it. I've waived my royalty, so uh, you get them half price. You have to use a little half price coupon, but 
you can download a copy for free and um, I would love for you to do that and experiment with it and, and uh, see if it works for you. What we're starting to have happen is that uh, other research universities are starting to use this book, this approach um, and to see if it works in their hands. And most recently, we, we had someone from Johns Hopkins University say that they've been using the approach um, very successfully. So we'll see if the, that research bears out. So what we have to do, of course, is just because it worked in my lab, in my hands, with with my approach, we have to replicate that in other labs with other people doing the same thing to make sure that it it really is something that can be very useful for people with low SES or for people who are just have limited cognitive function because of chronic illness. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure as your research expands, I think you will find that because it's it's really great work that you've spent um, a lot of years kind of honing and perfecting. So. I want to thank Beverly for being on the Healing Pain Podcast this week. This has been an excellent interview for anyone who's interested in the cognitive and mindfulness approach to healing from chronic pain. So make sure you share it with your colleagues or friends and family. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn. Those are the three places where people um, love to read this information. I want to share with you the link that Beverly mentioned. You can find it on the podcast page here, but that link again is P as in Paul, M as in Mary, T as in Tom, dot ua.edu forward slash publications. That's the link where you can find out more information about Beverly, as well as download um, that book that you can um, use, whether you're a patient or you're a practitioner. I want to thank everyone for joining us this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure giving the latest on pain care and pain science. Make sure you hop on over to drjotata.com forward slash podcast. On the right-hand side of the page, you'll see a little box where you can enter your name and email address. That way you can join the email list and I'll send you the latest podcast to your inbox each and every week. It's been a pleasure and we'll see you here next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotata.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata.